Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. I mean, if you strip away the layers, there's some place at the heart of someone that is infinitely fascinating and is very spiritual. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. We're good to go. All right, so we're going to just record. You're used to this. Yeah, you've kinda done sorta. this kind of sorta. I am joined by a person that I have never met before in my life. And this is actually two minutes ago when he walked in my office. I shook his hand for the first time. So this is going to be awesome. (laughs) I would love for you to introduce yourself, but don't tell us your name. Tell us what you're most passionate about, and then we'll get to your name introduction. Oh, that's an interesting question. So I guess I'm most passionate about... um, declaring the glory of God. Um, I mean, that's, that's who I am. I'm a follower of Christ and that's, you know, my vocation. I work for New Spring Church, um, which has, you know, uh, campuses and locations all across South Carolina. Um, and really the passion at the heart of all of that is telling God's story through the lives of um, his people uh, or even those that he has touched and graced in some way. And that's, that's, you know, what I do. I tell stories uh, in video and in long-form text. Introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Nicholas Charolambus. If you have ever met Nick, you are drawn in by his British accent and the inner desire to figure out how to spell his last name. Here's why. Because you will never forget this man once you shake his hand. So you better know how to spell his last name. Nick Charalambas is a man of many passions. He loves his work, he loves telling stories for the church he loves, he loves his wife, and he loves Christ. And I believe this affection is one of many intersections you will find woven together inside this soft-spoken man. Nick is a fellow storyteller, and it's time for his story to be told. He has done more than fought stage four bone cancer. His journalistic career as a heretic led him down a path to understand the inner workings of a rapidly growing church, one that led him to his faith. It is this faith that was the undercurrent after almost dying from a severe cycling accident, and then again as he fought stage four bone cancer. Here is his story. So, I assume like we're two, you get your name butchered. Yeah, I, I mean, most people just get intimidated by it, but um, it's actually very phonetic. It's Chara Lambus. So once once you, you know, kind of slow them down and say, hey, it's just, you know, just sound it out, they're normally okay. So tell us your background. How did you become a storyteller? Huh. Well, I guess the easy uh, path to tell that story is that um, right around college in the in the UK I did a an English language and literature degree at the University of Birmingham in England and um, there was a lot of academic writing involved in that and and I realized that I really didn't care about the academic writings and I didn't actually even care that much about the fiction writing 
I think what I really cared about was probing and exploring, you know, to use a fancy phrase, the human condition. And, uh, you know, I started getting involved on the student newspaper at the university there in, in Birmingham. And, you know, one thing led to another. And I basically felt like maybe I was kind of a better fit for journalism. And the U.S. was at the time the center of um, textual journalism and honestly broadcast journalism too. And uh, I just thought, well, maybe I should apply for this scholarship that, that the University of uh, Birmingham had with the University of Kansas, an exchange scholarship. And I thought I'll apply and, and I got it and was able to come train in the U.S. And I guess that's the, the beginning of that story. Tell me about your journalism career. Yeah, so I spent about 12 years total in journalism. I did two of those, I guess, at the um, Idaho State Journal in Idaho. And uh, I did another 10 or so at the Anderson Independent Mail in Anderson, South Carolina. I think um, I won probably a handful of state awards and a couple national ones. Um, you know, honestly, you know, I, I, you could say I was quite successful. Um, but, you know, I wasn't anticipating staying in Anderson, South Carolina. I was absolutely fully anticipating, you know, moving on to bigger and better things. But, you know, one thing led to another. I, I got married in Anderson and, you know, met Jesus in Anderson and, you know, just everything just basically made made sense to stay here and, and, and do what the Lord has called me to do. Uh, so we're going to ask the elephant question. In the room. <laughs> How does a British accent match with a Southern accent in Anderson, South Carolina? <laughs> Well, not very well, right? So everybody knows I'm I'm foreign. I get Australian and South African once in a while, uh, sometimes British. But um, you know, honestly, my my accent's not as British as it used to be. Like my my family f- makes fun of it now, um, and sometimes no one even draws attention to it, which is kind of fascinating to me because maybe they just assume that I have a strange accent. But like. Um, yeah, in the last few years, it's become quite, not rare, but uncommon for people to draw attention to it too much. So was it a beneficial addition to your reporting? You know, when you meet people, you're dr- people are usually drawn to someone that's a little bit different and want to have a conversation. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the easy in for a conversation starter. And, uh, you know, people want to get to know you a little bit um, before they reveal whatever it is that they're um, you know, uh, talking, you know, talking to you about. And so, you know, being able to say, yeah, I'm from the UK and I, you know, been over here for, you know, however many years and blah, blah, blah. It's a very, very helpful way of just, you know, uh, creating kind of empathy and, uh, just beginning, you know, the conversation on a friendly footing. Tell me some of the stories that you wrote about and covered here in the Anderson area. Mm. Maybe it was local, maybe it was regional. Talk yeah. us through some of the bigger stories that you, you... I mean, I think the ones that I remember the most were two crime stories, really. I think the first was the case of a, a fella called, I think I remember his name, John Richard Wood. And he killed a, a deputy, I think, on Highway 85, if I'm not mistaken. And... um his life ended in a hail of gunfire at the uh, end of a dead end road. 
in Anderson County. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, one of the very first times I had the opportunity, tragically, to do a full write-up, you know, on deadline. You know, in journalism, deadline, you know, is usually around about, you know, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. And so I had to, and I think the death occurred in the afternoon sometime around 3 and so I had to uh, scramble, literally, um, to get as much information as I could for an in-depth profile of John Richard Wood. I did do some of the on-the-ground reporting, but mostly that day my focus was as in-depth a profile of this man as you can do. And, and so that was, you know, a competitive challenge, you know, because you're obviously competing with other news, news organizations on a big story like that. But it was also a writing challenge, you know, um, and uh, and a time challenge. <laughs> so I remember that one. Um, I think the one I'm most proud of was the case of, I think I remember his name, something about, I think it was John Inman, perhaps. Um, I hope that's correct. But he was a, I guess he murdered a girl in Clemson whose name does escape me. And... Um, he had been released about a year or so before from um, a facility, a prison in Florida. And that reporting, again, I did an in-depth profile within a day or so of, of, of the murder taking place, or at least him being identified as the lead suspect. And then um, what I was most proud of, though, was the ability to dig deeper into the story and uncover essentially a series of uh uh, bureaucratic snafus that led to him being released. He was actually technically not supposed to be released. And, um, you know, I think it, it was one of the few times that I had in journalism, uh, the opportunity to honestly change the law. I mean, like, so lawmakers took the reporting that was done and basically fixed the problem that that caused it so um that was very gratifying so those are the two that stand out the most i think to me you know one of the questions that i get from many of my colleagues that are still journalists even young journalists you know when i go speak or or interact is how did you transition from the world of journalism into the world of telling stories for other people mm. on a paid basis so to speak yeah. you know what was that transition like so I would love to hear from your perspective, how did you transition? Were you called to transition? Mm. What what made you start considering looking at the life of a storyteller outside of the world of journalism, of the media, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, this is there's kind of a spiritual dimension to this that I can't really avoid talking about. I mean, you know, when I was a journalist, when I trained as a journalist and I was operating as a journalist for the first I guess, uh, five or six years, I wasn't a Christian. I was not a believer that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, in fact, I was a very aggressive atheist. And, uh, you know, essentially, even, you know, before I became a Christian, I realized, because I remember talking about the idea of starting up a, a company that would perhaps tell the stories of folks who are primarily for families to benefit, you know, who are close to death or, or want to memorialize their lives um, in some form or fashion that it would 
essentially help families connect with one another and 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 you know keep a legacy alive um so i know that i was already thinking about you know telling stories personal stories telling stories with a very spiritual or at least emotional component back then but but when i became a, a follower of jesus um i just remember just just absolutely knowing at the core of my soul that that at the end of the day um getting in touch with a person's heart and soul was the ultimate story that you know it wasn't about their accomplishments it wasn't necessarily about um you know the biographical markers that 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 we you know pass through and it's not even necessarily about the identities that we give ourselves there's some some place at the very i mean if you strip away the layers there's some place at the heart of someone that is infinitely fascinating and is very spiritual and um it kind of unlocks a piece of someone's soul and and I guess I just felt like I wanted to be part of those types of stories and so you know um you know when I became a Christian uh that began with me pursuing more and more opportunities at my I guess you could call it my my job my my gig at the independent mail of just you know exploring more and more feature type stories personally driven stories and you know, I think the two that I mentioned, um, the two crime uh, stories that I mentioned, uh, were actually in that season when it was like, I don't want to just write the news account. I want to try and probe deeper. I want to try and get to the heart of um, the person of the individual involved in the story. And so, as that began to happen, um, you know, I became more and more convinced that that was the heart of my passion in journalism. Um, but ironically, it wasn't that that led me into storytelling at New Spring Church. Um, you know, I ended up being promoted a couple of times, ended up in charge of web content. And uh, it was about five years after I'd gotten saved. And uh, somehow um, there was, um, I guess, uh, a need at New Spring at right that exact time period for someone to pioneer what we called the web uh, campus at the time it's basically an online form of of church and uh, given my background um, with new spring and and with web content and it was going to be a very obviously web driven uh, format platform um, it just seemed to make sense for me to join then and uh, so I did I joined the staff there and ironically within about a year um our leadership decided, no, what you really should be doing is telling stories. And so that's what I've been doing pretty much ever since. So let's examine that a little bit. You know, uh, you talked about at one point really being looking through the atheist lens, you know, mm. and I look at that lens as journalists are built. I wouldn't say to be skeptics, we're almost built a little bit to be heretics. <laughs> you know, we, we ask lots and lots of questions because we are in seek of truth. Right. And and I think you've kind of talked a little bit about, you know, we're in seek of little T truths, mm. but we're really trying to drive to this big T truth. Mm. Did you find your pathway of seeking these truths 
kind of expose you to this transition like how did I become go from atheist to exploring death to telling these stories to all of a sudden I'm going to be telling stories through for a church to talk about a path with Christ. Mm. That's a big transition in a way and maybe it's not maybe yeah, that's not I, a big transition. I don't know if it's as big a transition as it sounds and I think the reason why is that the beautiful thing about um, storytelling in a context of Christian ministry is the ultimate truth that you want to communicate is that God is in control of everyone's journey in some form or fashion and that they may or may not be aware of it at the time, but he is weaving a very elaborate tapestry um, in everyone's lives. And the ultimate story, I guess, is to reveal those strands that God has been, you know, weaving together. And so, you know, that if it's not done elegantly or, or, or excellently, it can sometimes seem very formulaic. Um, but I don't, I don't believe that the work that I've done, you know, uh, the work that we've done at New Spring has ever fallen into the trap of being formulaic. I think it's, we try very, very hard to be as sensitive as we can within the time constraints and the and the format constraints that you have with video um, to be an authentic, to tell an authentic story. And, you know, one of the beautiful parts of what we do is allow people to declare and preach the gospel in their own words. You know, they don't preach in the sense of, you know, use Bible verses and they don't preach in the sense of a three-point sermon, but just by declaring who God has been to them, just by declaring how God has revealed himself to them, how God has intervened and given his grace to them, that to me, and and I think, you know, anyone who would watch uh, one of these videos would be instantly recognizable as a capital T truth about how God exists. And he isn't a figment of someone's imagination. He is an emotional crutch. He is a true living God who is at work in the world. And that to me is the ultimate, uh, I guess to use a big word, the, the apotheosis of what journalism is about because it's, you know, journalism maybe outside of the Christian context is about finding those threads of meaning, finding those, you know, corroborative uh, aspects of a story and, and, and assembling them. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking here of, of, of the beginning of um, uh, the book of Acts, where Luke talks about creating an orderly account of the life of Jesus and, and what happened as a result of his uh, ministry. That is the spirit of journalism. You know, I believe Luke was the first journalist in the sense of, of in the Christian context, and so so I don't think that they're as far apart. I think all the skills, all the um, uh, instincts that you need to be a great journalist are the same exact ones to be a great storyteller for the kingdom of God. So one of the things that I think that journalism and journalists, brand journalists, content creators. Many times, I think personally, we I struggle with is telling my story. Mm. We, we're empowered to spend lots of time with people, get to know them. The camera is the insight into their soul. 
and there's a lot of trust. We dance with these individuals and, and we bring the camera in and we have to do it elegantly in a way that's proper and authentically tells their story. But many times they don't hear us. We, we're the, we're the crafters, but we're not the crafties. Mm -hmm. When did you start telling your story? Was it Mm -hmm. your bike accident? Was it your cancer journey? How did you transition from telling these stories to start telling your story? Well, truth be told, I haven't really told my story a whole lot, um, which is kind of, you know, it, it hits me from time to time that I haven't done that. Um, there was a couple of occasions at church that my story in, in basic terms was told. There had been, you know, obviously I've used a few blogs here and there to talk about my cancer journey. But yeah, and so I guess I hadn't, I don't believe I blogged at all through, you know, nearly dying in my bike wreck. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, it's funny. I, I guess I always felt strange about drawing attention to myself. And, you know, I, I, I guess I didn't want to be the subject of the story. Um, and that, you know, that, that was, how can I put this? That like, you know, when I was deciding to do this cross South Carolina journey that I kind of dubbed the cancer miracle tour SC, um, I had to kind of get over that hump of like, okay, maybe it's time to tell the, tell my story in some form or fashion as it's happening. And, uh, maybe, Maybe it's not self-indulgent to do it. Uh, maybe it's actually God-honoring to do it. And so I think, you know, I did I did tell some of my story uh, of the journey through cancer in real time, but I really tried to limit it to, you know, the, the essential threshold moments. So, um, so, yeah. So, you know, telling story, telling your own story, I think, is the hardest thing because you're always thinking through, like, how, really how how special is this i'm i'm not really that that different from everybody else i mean i'm not you know i mean why should somebody pay attention to my story i'm not i'm not that interesting and and so you know i guess i guess that's what's prevented me over the years from from sharing now a quick break to ask you for your help did you know intersection podcast is part of a network of shows And we're looking for your feedback. We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcast.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there, this is Bobby again. We need your help. If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. Well, your story is being told in a way that has been, has attracted me. I remember the first time that Tom, you know, my brother-in-law, Tom Heron, who you work with at New Spring, um, and... You know, he has been a has been a part of the growing of that church, 
you know, you've been on the early stages as well. And I remember when he came into the house one day and he said, you know, Nick had a bike accident and I don't think he's going to make it. And Tom was shaken because, you know, y'all have a a close relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, people that work in church have close relationship. Mm -hmm. Talk about that bike accident and what, what happened there and, you know, just explain that for us. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it was a normal, you know, uh, I think Thursday or Friday morning. And I think it was Friday morning cause I was off. So, you know, got up, did my usual thing. I thought I'll go for a bike ride today. It was a beautiful day outside. It was middle of July. It's not like, you know, 80 some degrees stopped to, uh, one of the very rare occasions where I decided to stop and make my wife some coffee. <laughs> and it just so happened as I was riding out in the first two or three miles, um, I was cresting a hill going about maybe 18 miles an hour, you know, not too fast for a cyclist. Um, and there was a trailer that had stopped, literally parked in the middle of the road. It's a two lane road I was riding that day. And uh, the reason I know what happened next was because there was a video that was captured by a security camera at the fire station um, right in front of the uh, the place where the wreck happened. And so um, essentially it looks like I just did not see this trailer, even though it was a it was filled with gardening or, or construction equipment and it was a large trailer and a large truck. For whatever reason, I can't fathom. The video just shows me acting like the trailer was not there. Um, I even look up a few times, you can see on the video, uh, and I, for some reason, my brain just did not compute that there was a stopped trailer. The best that I can understand, my brain was telling me, oh yeah, there's a trailer in front of you, but it was like, it must be moving because why would a trailer be stopped in the middle of the road? So I hit the uh, head on, I mean, literally head on, hit the trailer and got catapulted on, you know, over the top of all the construction equipment in the trailer, slumped on the side of the road. And um, I don't know who it was that, that called the ambulance, but the first thing I remember is being inside the hospital the day after. Um, so every memory of that moment is from the video, if, if you can call that a memory. I mean, everything that actually happened that day, I don't remember at all. Tom says it was by the grace of God that you were still alive. Mm. Describe some of your injuries and what your thoughts when you hear that that statement from Tom. Yeah, I mean, it's without doubt true. I mean, so I broke two vertebrae in my neck and I broke a vertebrae in my back. And um, ironically, the the spinal, the neurologist that came in and told me about my injuries to my spine basically said, oh, interestingly enough, your your neck, the opening for your spinal cord in your neck is particularly narrow. So if anyone was going to get paralyzed from those two injuries to your neck, it would have been you. <laughs> you know, even the piece of the vertebrae that was um, broken in my neck, or at least one of the places where it was broken, um, they said that usually there was a high chance of it shifting, but they were, so I would have had to have surgery to try and fuse some vertebrae in my neck, but somehow I had strong enough muscles in my neck because I happened to be a swimmer, I think, um, that 
the fragment of the bone in my neck was able to stay close to the site where it was uh, attached so that, that I didn't have to have surgery. So, I mean, it was, yeah, to me, there's no other explanation than the grace of God. What was rehab like? Rehab was pretty dreadful, actually. I mean, you know, I was in a cast, a body cast for about four months and I didn't have teeth. So I knocked out, you know, my, I think three front teeth technically. Um, And I had a very, very serious concussion. And, and, you know, so, you know, the, the, it was, uh, it was kind of a multiple layer of difficulty. Um, When I got out of the cast, um, trying to rebuild the muscle strength in my back was really difficult because you've got to take it. You've got to do the, the, the muscular work in, in stages. You can't push it too hard because then you'll, you know, injure yourself. And, and I was particularly concerned about re-injuring my back. Um, so it was slow. I mean, it took me probably about a year and a half before I felt like I could even, you know, bend and move the way that I would expect. Um, I tried to do some swimming during that time to, you know, kind of a low impact way of helping the, um, the recovery. And, you know, yeah, it was slow. It was, it was which frustrating. Is, which is interesting to me because I feel like we as journalists that were trained as journalists are workaholics mm. and we don't like to be laying down. <laughs> We like to do things. Right. We, we are active. We we are always thinking about our next stories. We're thinking about what, our work. Yeah. What was that like to have to slow down a little bit? And Well, yeah, I didn't slow down, really. I mean, so that was the irony, I think, is that, I mean, I think I was in the hospital for five or six days in the neuro ward. And then I think once I got home... I just try to figure out ways to accommodate the back brace. I remember when I went into to work at the church, um, there was a lounger that that we had lying around somewhere, and <laughs> and so I would sit in a lounger, uh, you know, because it was slightly spread out, so I could, you know, it, my back brace, you know, could you know be accommodated, and so uh, yeah, and just did my work in a kind of a laid back position <laughs> in a reclined position for uh, what four months or so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't remember really slowing down a whole lot. Um, I, it was awkward. I needed help. I needed people to move things around for me. I needed special chairs at times, but um, yeah, the bet to the best of my remembrance, I really didn't slow down. Um, Tom tells me that you, you know, after you kind of got well, you started having back problems and that back pain you were attributed to your, your cycling accident, but it turned out to be something more. Is that true or, well, it's, or it's, con- it's, contextualize that for us it, a little bit? Yeah, and, it's sort of true. So essentially I got to the point in the January of 2015 where, you know, and I think my um, back, my back injury, the wreck happened in July of 2013, right? So it's about 18 months later. Um, I had finally gotten to the place where I thought, you know what, maybe you can get back on your bike. Maybe you can, I I guess, 
declare victory in some form or fashion over the rehab process and 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 be an athlete or at least an amateur athlete again um well i started thinking well maybe i should do one of those sprint triathlons you know real you know (laughs) you know just jump out the gate and just go after something (laughs) right right but i mean in terms of training in terms of training right, right and i thought so i'll start training well i started training and i remember when i was running particularly i i felt you know just a lot of pain in my legs and um, I also started to feel, you know, this weird um, pain in my neck that just would not go away. And I just could not figure out, like, I thought originally in the first few weeks, I thought, well, maybe it's just that my body's adjusting um, to the new training and to the injuries that I could, that I had, uh, you know, had. And, and, and I thought to myself, well, it does make some sense that, you know, my back isn't probably used to the impact of the ground. And, you know, so it made sense. But the pain in my neck especially just kept, you know, persisting and persisting and persisting. I stopped running, stopped doing all the training activities, still continued, went to the doctor in March couldn't find anything on x-rays went to the doctor in april couldn't find anything on x-rays went to the doctor in may well let's do an mri zero well it got to the point in june at the end of june and and beginning of july where literally i could not bend over anymore like if i would get up in the morning and go to brush my teeth at the sink could not bend over the sink uh, to wash my face or do any of that stuff and Around that time, I realized that if I lay down to go to bed, I wouldn't be able to get back up in the morning. And so I started sleeping in a, you know, a, a recliner in the, in the living room. And essentially, the process at that, you know, once I, once those uh, problems started happening, I knew that, that this wasn't normal. So I, I you know, I guess as much as anything to just make sure that I wasn't dreaming this, I kind of went back to my neurologist and said, is there any conceivable way that this is connected to this wreck? I mean, any conceivable way. And he said, no. And I said, well, it sounds to me like I need to go see, you know, someone else. And he goes, and I would, I would concur with that. So when I went to see, uh, I think it was, uh, an endocrinologist or someone, I can't remember what type of doctor it was, but I went to go see him and he had no explanation either. He did another set of MRIs, still nothing. And in the space of two or three weeks after seeing him, I started having to use a walker to even move around and um, went back into his office at the end of uh, August. And he saw me, with a walker and it was like i think it just hit him it's like no this there's something very systemically wrong here and so he ran some more tests and one more set of x-rays and this time the x-rays came back and he noticed lesions all the way up and down i mean thousands of lesions all the way up and down my spine and into my pelvis and um you know he actually ended up calling me and telling me you know nick not good news. <laughs> you have cancer. And and that was the beginning of that journey. What was that phone call like? You know, it's funny. You, you kind of, I've done enough stories that you kind of imagine if you haven't heard of those types of calls. 
um, there was surprise in the sense of like, wow, like after all of this, you know, now we find out that I have cancer. So it was definitely a surprise because I would have assumed that if it was cancer, they would have been able to figure it out beforehand. But there wasn't really a whole lot of shock in the sense of emotional shock uh, in that moment. There was almost an instant sense in which, um, okay, this is a new journey that I get to take with God. And, and I'm not just saying that. That literally was the first thing that came to my mind. And um, he had been faithful from the beginning of my life and faithful in the wreck that I had. So I had to believe that he was going to be faithful in his own way um, through this journey. And so very quickly, my focus was really just on trying very, very hard to, to not, you know, uh, let my emotions, uh, run away from me to just keep focused on, um, I guess, letting God be my guide on this journey. I remember when we found out that, uh, Sarah's mom had breast cancer. I remember that first time that we sat down and we went through that conversation and um, she had triple negative metastatic breast cancer. Mm. Uh, it was stage three. She ignored it. And I remember her telling us, and I thought about it for a second in, in kind of classic journalist mode. And I wonder if you would agree with this. We kind of assess our situation. We compare to our previous contexts. Mm. You know, you've—I'm sure you've told cancer stories. I've told cancer stories. Mm. We spend lots of time interviewing to pull those sound bites out to understand to expose people to the raw emotion. But then all of a sudden, it's your emotion, mm. and it's kind of a weird way to actually start putting words to it. Mm. Um, how did? Did you experience that? And what was there a shift there, or did you realize anything that now this is my story? Mm. I, I don't think I instantly felt like this was going to be a story that I would share. I think my first thought was this is this is me and God, you know, mm. and and obviously my wife was absolutely a huge part of that. But it, you know, when you're sick, and especially seriously sick. I mean, I was dying. I mean, there was no doubt about it. Like within weeks, if not a few months. How serious was it? I mean, the doctors, when I went, I was uh, hospitalized on an emergent basis, uh, MUSC, within a couple weeks, I think, or within a week, 10 days of finding out that I was diagnosed. I mean, my bones were, were so uh, brittle and uh, crumbling, essentially, from the tumor that they were dumping tons of calcium into my bloodstream and, and it's called hypercalcemia. You can basically die from it within, you know, a matter of half an hour sometimes. So like, you know, I was emergent, uh, you know, uh, at that point and, you know, the doctors were able to stabilize me. Um, but you know, when they were trying to figure out how to treat this disease, I mean, it was clear for them that, that number one, it was a rare form of, of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they didn't have a protocol for it. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network. 
podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.